Welcome to the ACO Show, a podcast that explores how one company is working within the structure of a relatively new type of healthcare entity, accountable care organizations, to help change how healthcare is delivered in America. I'm Josh Israel, a physician and a medical director at Allidade. Allidade was co-founded by three people, and on this podcast, we've heard from two of them, Farzad Mostashari and Edwin Miller, and it's time we got to the third one. And I'm Joe Schunkweiler. I'm a physician by background and the leader of adoption and training here at Allidade. For this interview, we spoke to Matt Kendall. As a co-founder of the company, Matt has been with Allidade since inception four years ago. His current role is as the Executive Vice President of Network Operations. Now that may not be a self-evident job title, but what it really means is that he runs the ground game and oversees our field teams across the country, working with hundreds of practices and caring for over 300,000 patients. As much as anyone in the country, Matt understands what it takes to start and run accountable care organizations. And we got to talk to him about what it looks like on the ground, as well as exploring his extensive career in healthcare. I think it's really clear when he talks about it, just how many challenges there are in something like this. And you hear his concern for doctors and patients, how it drives him to keep improving the company. I think if doing something like this were easy, it probably would have happened a long time ago. And it's probably important to care a lot about the mission of something like this to keep at it, just given the sheer hard work of it. So let's get to the conversation. Matt, thanks for being here with us. Happy to be here. So you, along with Farzad Mostashari and Edwin Miller, are one of the co-founders of Allidate. So we'll get to how that came about, but we'd love to hear about your life before Allidate. What were you doing that led you to that? So I've got a public health background. Um, I actually, right out of college, did an internship for New York City government called the Urban Fellows Program, where I worked for the uh, New York City Council's Office of Oversight and Investigation. Mm -hmm. And I got to run around the city doing exciting things like figuring out how, why people were jumping over turnstiles for metro coach swiping violations, <laughs> uh, investigating a dirty water dog crisis and things like that. Um, but actually, uh, I really got my focus in healthcare when I moved out to California and ran a federally qualified health center. Mm -hmm. um, and we were located in San Jose, California, and I was there just when the tech bubble burst. So I was living in Palo Alto, commuting into San Jose, and I remember watching the traffic that was like seven mile back up disappear in the course of six weeks. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, and it, it was sort of a surreal time because, you know, fairly qualified health centers, typically, you know, we don't have a lot of resources, we don't have a lot of, you know, ability, especially in a place like San Jose. But there was this narrow window of opportunity where we actually had dedicated revenue streams so we could actually do things. Um, so one of the things I did was I bought the building the clinic was operating in. It was the best real estate decision I've ever made in my entire life. Um, but it also got me really interested in healthcare because we had all these programmers who lost their health insurance who come to our little clinic. And, and this is you know before electronic health records and we had on the wall giant run charts of every day of the week and people coming in and we document the number of diabetics on the wall, literally on the wall and pen and we'd sit back and try to figure out ways of improving healthcare. Um, and all these um, you know, programmers came in, they're like, why aren't you on electronics? You know, eBay was literally in our back window. Uh, and it got me excited of sort of about you know, using health information technology in the most primitive sense um, to be, really improve health outcomes. 
And what year was that, Matt? So that was uh, about around 2000, 2000, 2000, 2003. I was living out there in 2000 in San Francisco, also watching my uh, my web van stock investment go to zero. Yeah, exactly. That? Oh, I, it, it was surreal to be uh, on the streets of San Jose because all these places disappeared overnight. And we got mm-hmm. furniture. We got, I think we got 18 foosball tables. <laughs> it was like a great day to be a federally qualified health setup. Yeah. I love that. You were a web van investor. I was. <laughs> my first jobs I made, I had $2,000 to spend. I put it into web van right. and went to zero. It was yeah. between pets.com <laughs> exactly. and web van. Yeah. Okay. And um, then how did it come to be that you, you got involved in this endeavor? So the the backstory there was um, I was out in uh, California, and I'm not sort of a California kid. Um, you know, I remember going to city council hearings in San Jose to, to ask for money, wearing a suit, and you know everybody else would be there. Mike Honda, who's the congressman, was sitting there in his flip flops. Mm-hmm. I would put a little cornstarch in my hair and make it look a little gray, so people would take me a little seriously. Um, did you actually? I absolutely did that. I absolutely. Well, you're asking for like several hundred million thousand dollars. You gotta, you gotta look the part. So uh, you know, it, it, these are the little things that I did. Uh, but then I decided that I wanted to move back to New York City, um, and my resume was sort of floating around by a bunch of people and I got a phone call one day from this guy and he was like hey Matt this is Farzad can we talk and I was like who are you what Farz far what um, and I came into a meeting Farzad at the time was running Epi Services which was the skunk uh, works of the New York City Health Department you know when Mike Bloomberg set up the uh, became mayor he really wanted to have an impact he hired the best commissioner he could Tom Frieden and Frieden said I need like a research team so he put Farzad on top in charge of that and Farzad at the time was working on something called syndromic surveillance, which was really the process of looking for disease outbreak patterns in data. So he was looking at uh, emergency room you know, chief complaints, and he was trying to broaden it. And I remember coming in, and he, he was also working on these community health surveys, and I was really, I didn't know that at the time, but I was very interested in them. So I came in, and I had like all his community health surveys. I printed them up and like documented them and written on them. Hmm. And uh, he and I had, which was probably about a six-hour meeting, involved mm-hmm. like using up all the whiteboards in the meeting and then walking for about, you know, probably we walked about five miles up and five miles back on the West Side Highway. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was the first meeting. And then so Farzad and I started working together in New York City, trying to figure out how to use health information technology. Uh, we pitched to Bloomberg for his second campaign to, to really think about wiring uh, doctor's offices the same way that he'd wired sort of business office, give it, uh, doctors right information at the right time. Uh, he gave us a, a couple hundred, a couple, uh, million, hundred million dollars in city funds and said, go, go leverage more. So we went out and did that. And we proceeded then to launch something called the Primary Care Information Project, where we rolled out electronic health records to the most medically underserved parts of New York City. We got about 66% of all independent primary care providers using EHRs. And this is before EHRs were a thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember vividly, far as I would work to put clinical decision support into the EHR. Because our vision wasn't like the tool itself wasn't for other things. Our vision was really trying to figure out ways in which we could, you know, make it work for public health. Like, how do we get those quality measures there? How do we, I remember the insight we had was that when a patient showed up and a diagnosis was dropped, that could trigger clinical decision support. And this was like a revolutionary moment. But I remember sitting in the room watching Farzad. We'd meet with developers on a Monday. They'd work all week. And then on Friday, they'd demo what they did. Um, and it was a sort of a surreal time to be sort of working on EHRs and technology. And so what year was that during the Bloomberg year? So that um, was... Um, roughly. Th- I think it's like 2004 to 2009 is okay. when we ended up. Because then what happened was um, 
the stimulus bill passed, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, High Tech Act passed. Mm-hmm. So there was $2 billion being allocated for health information technology nationally. Um, and at that point, you know, David Blumenthal, who's the national coordinator, mm-hmm. asked Farzad to come down to be his deputy. And I got to come down, too, to try to help run the ground game there. Okay. So um, I was in charge of something called the Regional Extension Center Program. But uh, when you're building a team in, in government, it's very important to think of your acronym. So I started with my acronym first, and it was OPAS. And then I worked backwards. So OPAS <laughs> was the Office of Provider Adoption Support. Um, and it was amazing because I'd have these grand team meetings where I'd come on stage and I'd go, hello, everybody, and everyone yell OPAS together. And it felt like sort of a Greek wedding. It was, it was fabulous. That is a genius. That is, <laughs> but that's like you know the Patriot Act. They started with that. You go there and you'll go yeah, back and forth. It's yeah. it's you gotta. It's all about sort of yeah. what people are gonna get to and then working backwards. Yeah. The the acronym office. I love it. Exactly. Uh, you know that's you know that's really interesting. I I've known you for a little over a year yeah. now, and I did not know that California swing that you had or the FQHC exactly. Um, what about so you and I have a a, a shared background in government work, you from the agency side, me from the legislative side in the Senate. Um, And I often think about what I did in the Senate that prepared me well for the pace and the the rigors of this job. Um, But what about what what you'd done pre-Alidaid set you up to come in and do Alidaid? Well, I think working for government is is really empowering because um, at least where I worked, it was very mission-oriented. You know, we were very passionate about helping America. You know, when I was at uh, ONC, you know, my job was to help 100,000 primary care docs. And especially, we, we've, we framed it so it wasn't the hospitals, it was the small guys. Right. Go and get on EHRs. And that was an audacious goal. I think we were, you know, in the low, maybe 8, 10% adoption rate. And we got up to about 60, 70% by the time I was done. Mm-hmm. Um, so that mission orientation is is really important, and I think that there is something about that when you're trying to do something audacious, something that hasn't been done before. You know, government has a lot of levers that you can do mm-hmm. these great things, and I think that that is it's very powerful. It attracts incredible people. I've been incredibly fortunate to the people I've worked with in government, many of whom work here at Alley mm-hmm. now, because I think we got great talent. I also think there's a to, to be successful in government, you have to be creative. Mm-hmm. And you have to be nimble. And it is one massive no after another. And to be successful, you just got to figure out how to find the seams and push forward and figure out ways of getting to yes. And sort of that constant troubleshooting, that constant sort of being on your toes mentality, I think is really helpful because, you know, in a startup, there, there are lots of setbacks. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I tell people, this is Barzad and my third startup. We've done one in the largest city government in the country. You know, we went one in the federal government and then this. And I think the first two really helped prepare us in the sense that it just, you, you learn to deal with, you know, setbacks, you learn to deal with sort of challenges, things like out of left field that you never had to anticipate, like that could totally derail things. You just sort of learn to go with the flow. And I think it's been an incredibly powerful experience that helped shape us and get us ready to be where we are right now. I think the uh, people underestimate the um, agency know-how, like the, the, yeah. the know-how and just raw creativity um, working within constraints that exists at the agency level yeah. in the U.S. government. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's totally underappreciated. And, it, you know, it's a cliche, it's a punching bag for everything, mm-hmm. but there are some of the greatest people there who just want to do good yeah. in, in a larger sense. And that there's, you know, they're not there for the money and all these other things, certainly not the perks. But I think there is this ability to do good and, you know, 
what we tried to do in the federal government was set the stage for people to do the things that we're doing. Like Allidade came about because we understood that primary care providers needed to get the right information they needed to, to mm-hmm. change healthcare. And, you know, I think that it was trying to bring people together, seeing all this good stuff that really helped, you know, sharpen the point that, you know, we, there was huge need out there. There are right. incredible people in this country who are doing tremendous work every day. And, you know, there was an opportunity for a company to come in and do that. And that's what Allidate's all about. What weren't you prepared for? I think what I wasn't prepared for was um, the challenges of... Uh, to to support our practices, we have to support all their needs, mm-hmm. and that getting them to focus on value based care is really important. But when Medicare is only ten percent of your population, and there's ninety percent of other patients coming in, getting that mental capacity extended, even when they bought in, has been hard. Right, because it's just it's really hard to be a primary care provider in this day and age. Mm-hmm. You know, every you know ten fifteen minutes, there's another patient coming in the room, different insurances, different backgrounds. And having to build a system that can really support them is hard. And, and you know, all they want to do is the best thing they can do for their patients. But the way the system's set up, it's it, it's setting them up for such challenges because you got to remember with this insurance, you can prescribe this drug, mm-hmm. and this you can't, this procedure. All they want to do is what's best for their patient. And having to really understanding the magnitude of that weight on practices and trying to figure out a way of lifting it up, taking things off their plate, um, that, that's really daunting, and it, it, you know, I knew it was going to be hard. I didn't know how hard it was going to be. Do you ever think about that in terms of a uh, you know in the startup world in particular? We think a lot about um, competitive landscape, you know, external competitors, but yeah. that's sort of a mix, right? Because you're competing for our customer and our user, their attention span, yeah. their their time, their energy in a way that's not easily. Um, analogous to to other startups and i'm also recognizing they don't have they're at max capacity to begin with so part of to be successful i have to take things off their plate mm-hmm. i have to make it easier because these people i'm going to ask them to do more i'm going to ask them to do what these other things mm-hmm. i have to make it better because they're just it's not a capacity issue mm-hmm. and i think we are successful when we can really get in their workflow in a meaningful way and, and get them the right information in the right in, in the right nanosecond so that they can use it. Because right. the providers are so powerful. They talk, just simply talk to their patient. Like, I don't think people recognize that power that happens there. Um, but that is, it's, it's very special. But there's so many competing things that happen in those three minutes when you actually have gone through everything where you can communicate. And I think that's the special nature of Allidate is we can figure out what, if you're going to cover something in those three minutes, like what are the things that you or the doctor need to do Mm -hmm. before it's filled up with the noise that comes from patients? And oftentimes that's nervousness. You know, how many patients hold off on the, 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 Josh, you understand this, Mm -hmm. you know, your hands on the door Mm -hmm. leaving and, oh, by the way, doc, right? Mm -hmm. They've been waiting the whole time to ask you this question, but they can't get there. And it's that art form of being a provider, how we can assist them, that, that is just, it's a challenge. And I think it's one of the things we need to do. Because it's not just they're it, they are so overwhelmed by you know all the boxes they have to check right. and all the things they have to do. Um, if we could just take that off their plate and let them just focus on providing high quality care, I think people would be tremendously happy. Yeah, I think a lot of us who came to work here and were not primary care physicians really didn't appreciate that in the beginning. You know, when I was a psychiatrist, I had my stressors, but it wasn't about the, the tremendous time pressure. You know, if a psychiatrist has one thing, it's time with a patient. Um, and really much more profoundly understanding the degree to which they are so busy, they are so swamped, that if they're not doing something, it's not because they're 
you know, reading the newspaper. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I never thought of that, but you must, when you are practicing in psychiatry, you don't think in terms of like, I have eight minutes. Or well, I you think in terms of time, but it's just much more time. Right, an hour, Yeah. right? Like you live in, in it's funny, when I was a, in the surgical world, that only comes into play in the OR. You know, like an appendectomy should take X mm-hmm. amount of time. And I think that's probably a, a poor indicator for our patient bedside time. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of as quick as you can do that at 4 a.m. or whatever. But anyway. So everybody that works here knows that you run the ground game. You know, you're not quite as much the public face as far as that is. Um, but maybe people don't understand what it is you do day to day. So can you speak a little bit about what it is you do to keep this place running, to keep all the trains from crashing into one another? Well, I think there are a lot of wonderful people who are doing a lot of the work that I, I, I get to, to communicate with and am responsible for. But the, a lot of the day-to-day work is being done by others. Uh, but the provider network team, we have three primary focuses. Our, our first focus is on outreach or identifying practices that we think would do well in primary care, uh, in a value-based primary care system, engaging them, educating them about the program, and getting them to enroll. Uh, then the next part is really the ACO management activities of like the people in the field. You know, these are the executive directors, coordinators, practice transformation specialists that we have um, who are out there doing the work with the practices day in and day out. And then we have our adoption success team that's really looking at how we can do things at scale, such as training, you know, implementation, EHR adoption, things like that. Um, and I think, you know, we basically describe ourselves as the field folks because we really are on the front lines in terms of communicating with our providers, hearing what their needs are, figuring out what their strategies are. Um, and I think we, we depend on everybody else at Allidade to have the tools and resources and supports to do this. Because I think when you think about why, what, what's Allidade's approach? Well, our approach is really to figure out, you know, look at all the data and pulling the data together is hard. You know, we, we, we have to... The people out in the field are every day fighting to get those, you know, interfaces set up or being able to get the hospital to share the ADT data so we can pull in that comprehensive understanding. But when we pull that together, we can figure out where we need to focus. And then getting those strategies and plan and communicating with the practice to have a concrete plan of how we're going to work together to be successful takes a lot of time. But then those those strategies have to be then baked into the workflow tools that we have in the app. And so getting that out there and being able to facilitate it. And, and all this is predicated on being able to sort of have strong communication between all the people in the field. So, you know, I think a lot of what I do is is really helping, you know, block for my team in terms of helping get make sure they get the resources and support necessary to do their jobs. Um, but but really, you know, uh, we, we in the provider network world are, are beholden to our providers. You know, I think it really is an issue. Of we, work, we exist to serve them. So we have to keep that in mind in terms of all the activities that we do. As you were developing the very early stages of Allidate as a company, um, take us through the thought process about how you would divvy up those responsibilities. Because I think that... Uh, I was particularly interested when I was first interviewing here and then learning about how the company works. Uh, you know, the tech team has a very specific set of uh, goals and outcomes that they're working to. Um, that dovetails a bit with the analytics side, but the field team that you rightly said is much more amorphous. So, like, what were those first conversations like about how the house would be split up? Well, I think you know. It, it, all started off very quickly. Mm-hmm. Like, right, we had this idea. I, I left ONC in like March 
sort of talking with Farzad and Farzad's basement for, for a couple weeks. We're trying to get funding together. And then in June, we said, okay, we're ready to go. Mm-hmm. But we had, you know, from the June 15th start date to July 31st to sign up our first ACOs. Mm-hmm. So essentially, in early stages, all hands on deck for all activities right. early on. And I think that, you know, the idea about Allidate is that there should be, there's not going to be a sales team. We're never mm-hmm. going to have a sales team that signs someone up and then, you know, throws them over the fence. And that's that's been a tension because that's actually how mm-hmm. other startups are all formatted. And we, from the very first, said, no, that's not the model. Yeah, particularly in software. In software, exactly. Yeah. And so this is this is tough when you're talking to your investors because they don't understand this model of, wait, mm-hmm. you, you have the same team that sets, that, that sells them, then works with them and how that goes. But for us, it's all about relationship management. So it's essential that you have the same people going together because it's in your vested interest if you're going to have to operate them, you're not going to bring in practices, you're not going to be successful because you're going to have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And I think that there is a huge um, you know, power in being able to have that you know, relationship. I, I talked to you on day one. Mm-hmm. I told you about this. This is it today. That continuity is very important. So I think from the early days, we always knew we wanted that model to be there. But I remember early on driving around Delaware with Edwin, and it was just the two of us. And it was like Edwin would go in and pull data out of the system. I'd be talking to them about annual wellness visits. We'd be sort of talking them to high level about what's going to look like pushing forward. But I think we always recognized that you know we had to have continuity with the, the practice. And even if it may be amorphous on externally, to the practice, that's it. They know who their practice transformation specialist is, they know who their ED is, that is their world to allocate, and that's the central plug-in. So we got to make sure that we continuously support those people in doing the work that they're doing, because they really are the eyes and ears we have with the practices. I love the thought that, you know, my team does the implementation, the very early implementation for practices, and we always have a uh, sort of boilerplate slide of this is your team that those early teams their tech contact was edwin miller who's our yep. cto absolutely their uh you know the the coordinator type contact was was matt kendall yep. who's our one of the co-founders of the company uh so that's a really great thought of you guys and, and it was fabulous because we were waiting for emily to take her boards like right. we had like all these people who are here today doing these things but there were their days the early stages where we were just literally flying by the seat of our pants so we have talked on this show with others about the phenomenal growth we've seen here at Allidade, just in terms of the number of ACOs that we're mm-hmm. managing. Um, talk us through your thoughts on what that growth means in terms of management challenges. So going from those very first ACOs of you and Edwin, you know, doing the roadshow yourself to now 20 plus ACOs plus, you know, sky's the limit um, as we move forward. How different is it? I, I think it's, it's, it's very different. I mean, we've learned a lot since we, we launched, but I think um, one of the things that really helps us out is that we are building an infrastructure that can scale, especially in terms of our systems. So in the early days, we're still figuring things out. You know, we would literally be cobbling together data sets in mashing them up and seeing what works. Now we have a much more systematic way. Our our launch team can pull together the data Mm -hmm. systematically. We can use that to set up targets. Our ACO management system can really help sort through all the different opportunities and come up with actionable lists that we can then use the tools to monitor. So I think, you know, from, from a company standpoint, we really have infrastructure now that allows us to roll out, you know, 15 ACOs at a time, 20 ACOs at a time. That's not the, the, the problem. Um, and I think that's really helpful because 
you know, my other hat, the hat of the outreach hat, like there is so much need out there for the services that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And we've had to be pretty parsimonious about how we grow historically because we wanted to make sure that we're bringing the right people on board. You know, and I think as we're getting better and stronger as an organization, you know, we're able to bring on more people, people who may have challenges that may, may make them have some hurdles to overcome. But we can now have a systematic way of doing that. And it's not a one off anymore. Um, and I think that's the, the power of Validate is really that, you know, we are we've done this a couple times now. We have experience. We know what it's like to do this. And every cycle we get better and stronger um, because we now can bring in people who do nothing but implementation. Right. I was a horrible coordinator. I'm so much better than, than there are other coordinators on board who can do that job now. It was not my strength. But uh, thankfully, we've got, got folks like that across the country. And then you, you referenced cranking out ACOs, getting that set up. What is that process like? from your team? So I think it, it, the most important thing is about identifying the right providers. Um, you know, at Allied, I think we recognize that the, the power of the independent provider, right? They, they represent 5% of total cost of care, but control 85% of where costs go through referrals. And I don't think providers understand that soft power. Um, it, it's tremendously important. Um, and we spend a lot of time looking at different practices, figuring out what the opportunity is for that practice. And, and making sure that it's going to be a win-win for all parties involved. You know, we, we do a huge amount of data analytics before we even, you know, start working with a practice. We will do something called a value report, which is really about us getting the most rich data set we can on the practice and having a discussion with them about where the opportunities for savings are. So that outreach process is, is very time intensive and takes a while. But what we're able to do is create these small groups of independent providers who may never have worked together before and, and galvanize them. Um, so that is the outreach process, and it takes a while. Once, once we've got them going, and we, we have an official launch, mm -hmm. um, and the official launch is really about welcoming to them to the Allidade network. You know the Allied family because we really are, uh, uh, in a sense, you know, working across the country for the same goals. Um, and there's nothing that's more satisfying to me is when I go out to Alabama and I'm talking to a practice and they pick up the phone and call their three friends in, you know, Minnesota, Kansas, and Delaware, and, and they're all together. You know, I was just at AAFP and their Congress of Delegates. Like the number of Congress representatives that are Allied members was amazing. Mm -hmm. And that's not unintentional because of the people we're looking for. They, those independent providers really do dovetail well with us. But then once they get going, we try to get them up to speed as fast as we can. And Joe, you and your team really mm -hmm. do drive that work. Um, but it's, it's essential because time is what's against us. Mm -hmm. And when you're looking at these populations, it takes a long time to get people to a place where they can consistently get savings. Because first of all, you have to understand what's going on. You gotta gather that data. Mm -hmm. And you know, we can pull in practice level data almost off the bat in terms of the EHR and what they've done historically, their claims. But it takes us a while to get that CCLF data. Mm -hmm. But we can begin working with them on what we have and layering on other data sources as we get going and give them insights that they don't have. Were you surprised at all the challenge of uh, incorporating all those data sources? You know, as the Luddite of Allidate, I was not. Uh -huh. But um, Edwin always warned us that this would be the challenge. Yeah. And I think, you know, we're working with 70-plus EHRs, right. every flavor of every software package out there. Um, I think we also recognize, though, that this is sort of something that you have to do to be able to make it work. Mm -hmm. You've got to be able to get the data there. And you've got to give the insights to the docs. And that goes back to the, wor the, the workflow. because. Mm -hmm. If you can't pull all this together, you can't make that in those three minutes that primary care provider has with a patient to talk, the, the impactful stuff. 
Um, and I think that it is a challenge. My hat goes off to the tech team. Our tech team is amazing. They they extract everything. I remember, you know, when they they figured out how to take faxed out discharge notes and use it, uh, optical recognition to turn it into an eighty feet TV. Like right. that was just brilliant. Like it was just so like we're going to deal with the world as it is and make it the world we want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and it illustrated sort of their amazing power and ability to just. To work wizardry. Yeah, I think some, you know, as you referenced, the t- my team leads that early stage, uh, and sometimes we don't uh, appreciate the challenges that are involved in bringing all those data feeds from disparate sources into a single source in our uh, the Alidade app yeah. because, uh, and it's a bit like. Uh, you know, the way they talk about Wi-Fi on airplanes, you know, where uh, the first time it blinks out, you're like, yeah, of course it blinks out, you know. <laughs> and, but in reality, it's amazing. Yeah. You know, think about what we would have done for that kind of connectivity. And, and it's the same kind of thing that we, it's a testament to our tech team and our analytics teams and everyone that, uh, the interface team that, that collects that and, and the folks that I uh, work with on the launch side, um, that it makes it look so easy to do and seamless but it, it is, is incredibly challenging and, and you know from the provider's perspective i think they have been through the ringer so many times mm-hmm. of so many things that when you actually show them the data i was in shreveport louisiana last week with a, a newly launched uh, aco that had been an aco before and and therefore you know they decided that they wanted help from Alidate halfway through we were able to load their cclf and give them patient level insights in a room that just blew their mind Wow, and they they were like, oh my god, you have my patience, and they started like looking around. And they're like, mm-hmm. look at this insight, and I think that that you know they want the data, they want this information, and that's what makes the the pain and suffering of actually pulling it together um, totally worthwhile. Sure. Yeah, when this is finally fixed, people are going to look back and think that was an insane period. There's all this mm-hmm. data, and it didn't connect. The, the yeah. systems didn't talk to one another. Who who made that system? Yeah. So there is obviously a lot of room for improvement in the healthcare system. There's a lot of different things that a company like Allidate could do. Can you speak to your your own personal goals? What would look like success for you here and how you think you'll be measuring that? Uh, success is, is very easy um, for me. Um, you know, we have r- roughly today about 400,000 patients in value-based care. I want to have them not go to the emergency room. I want them to spend time with their families and not have to go to specialists. I don't want them exposed to unnecessary things. I want them to get the things that keep them healthy. To me, it really is about the lives, the actual lives we impact. Because when you look at our ACOs, we drive down you know, emergency room rates. We drive down hospitalizations. Like That is real. And we're doing it on a scale that is, is incredibly powerful. You know, There are tens of thousands of people who have been impacted by our work. That's what I want to do. And you know, as we grow, we grow because we want to help more and more people stay healthy. Mm-hmm. That is the mission. That is what we're going to be doing. And the good news is that also translates into a, to a healthy bottom line for the company and the providers. So you know, one of my happiest things is uh, writing checks to our providers for shared savings because they've earned every last penny of that. Um, and I expect to see that getting, you know, I, I tell people I'm looking forward to the day when I'm tired of writing checks to docs. <laughs> and cramp. Exactly. Exactly. When I have to have to go out about it. I'm going to sign every one of those checks for right now because it's just victory is so sweet. And what was the, um, 
What's it like to write that big check? How about the first big check you got to write? Can you can you share that? I mean, I, I, I they all are big. Like, sure. Again, my, my world is an FQHC, so right. So I remember what it's like to meet payroll and right. to be there. Right. Um, and you know, these are these are not huge practices we're mm-hmm. talking about. And and we've had providers who've literally had to cash the check to make their next payroll. Mm-hmm. And that, mm-hmm. like, I felt such power in connection with that provider because I know what it feels like when you are a primary care oh, provider. Yeah. You are on the edge, and they can't bank on this yet. This is the first time they're seeing mm-hmm. it. But the future, when they can bank that these dollars are coming in, they're going to change their practices and be able to do things mm-hmm. in a different way. But I remember vividly, you know, I, I remember the first half million dollar check that we saw into a practice that had just killed it. But I also remember, you know, a, a two doctor practice giving them $200,000 and they're just like, you got to be kidding me. Yeah, I, I was talking with one of our one of our docs. We we just gave a check out, and he was like, you know, four years ago, all my buddies laughed at me. They said, "Why aren't you joining the hospital? You know, you'll never make the money that you're, we're going to make now. You know, all this stuff." And the provider was just gleeful because he's like, "I'm making more in this one check than I did before any of this came together. All my friends are in the hospital. They're miserable, and they're trying to see how they can be like me now." Like it validated his decision to be there for his patients and and to be an independent. And I think that is just an incredible high. That's great. What about the, um, do you find that that's your biggest challenge is keeping practices, biggest challenge in terms of growing our provider base, keeping them out of joining hospitals, doing nothing? Like what's that competitor landscape yeah, in that regard? I, I think that there's been a lot of hospital consolidation. This is a cyclical thing mm-hmm. that happens in healthcare. And I think that there have been a lot of people who have been bought out by hospitals hospitals at this stage we don't lose that many people to hospital violence mm-hmm. at this stage um we get a lot of people who are in hospitals saying how can i get out right and you know we, we talk about aco liberate like hospital mm-hmm. liberation giving them back and i think that cycle will happen as we get going and, and, and more of that i mean the real challenge right now is that you know being an independent doc is a huge commitment it's really hard there's a lot mm-hmm. going on and being asked to sort of you know do something new is hard um, so I think we deal more with just providers being overwhelmed with life than actually making a decision to be bought up by a hospital or not. Because our, our, our docs are independent for a reason. Right. They're, they're, they're not going anywhere. The challenges of running an independent practice, my father ran his own practice for decades, um, are so real and you're so poorly equipped coming out of medical school and residency to handle that. Um, that was my earliest impression of what we were doing here at Allidade and the value add um, you know, it's there's a great it's an older book now, but I don't know if you've ever read Lewis Thomas. Um, so he's a physician um, and a writer, a really exceptional writer, and he wrote a book called The Youngest Science about medicine. And his dad had a primary care practice, I believe, an independent primary care practice. And this was probably in like the 30s and 40s. Okay, so a while ago. But he talked about the challenges of making payroll in his dad's practice. That his mother. Uh, he had these vivid memories of his mom in their backyard looking for four-leaf clovers just as extra luck because money was so tight in the house. And it's funny when I read this many years ago when I was in medical school, but I knew what that was like. Like I understood the what I understood later in business school to be lumpy revenue, right? So the, the cash flow coming into a practice, an independent practice, is unpredictable. Um, you may be profitable for the whole year uh, and still have cash flow problems because if you, your cash demand hits where you're at a, a, a valley when you need to be at a peak, 
you're in real trouble. Absolutely. So, and you're poorly equipped as a business that size uh, with unpredictable revenue streams to, to manage that. So um, it, on that note, what's it like for uh, providers when they come in and they maybe are really hopeful that they're going to get a check early yeah. and they don't save money um, even though they're, they may see some improvements. What are you... Like, what are those interactions like with those the, the early stages? Well, I, th- I think we're better now at managing expectations than they were when we began, candidly, um, because it does take time. Mm-hmm. And we know that a first-year ACO is just, it's really hard to get savings because you don't get data until, you know, you're halfway through the year. You can't respond as quickly. Some of the environmental trends you're just not aware of. And it takes time to chip them away. Um, the good news is that our model works. And as you age in our ACOs, the savings get greater and greater and that you will get checks. Um, but it does take time. I think we try to deal with that by really working actively with practices to figure out other ways of generating what we call good fee-for-service revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've been pretty good at that. You know, our, our practices are getting you know, $50,000 more on average because from Medicare just because they're doing things that are good for patients like AWVs, transition of care management visits, CCM. You know, the construct is that you can still do well um, by doing fee-for-service um, as we transition over. Mm-hmm. It would be so much easier for them if they didn't have to do that because it would be all this check-the-box mm-hmm. stuff that they have to go through. And it, it, there's certainly work. Like, this is not free money. They're working sure. hard for this extra revenue. But we can usually find that bridge going forward. I think this is also why it's so important for us to continue to get commercial contracts for our, our, our uh, practices because that sort of they need to get value for all their patients. And, you know, Given the time of MSSP, if a commercial contract can hit earlier, that's important to folks. We get them paid, you know, get money in their pockets and allow them to move forward. Um, but but it, is, it is really, really hard being an independent primary care provider. Yeah. And have you seen other things that convert doctors from sort of fee-for-service mindset to a value-based mindset? You know, the skeptics that um, clearly, as you say, you know, a check, a shared savings check can go a long way towards changing the conversation and changing the way somebody views it. Have you seen other things that, that work to get providers on board with this, this difficult switch? I, I think actually the thing that's most compelling is when you can frame it around patient outcomes mm-hmm. and what's happening with the patients. I think when you talk about, you know, readmission rate go down by 3%, like that's not meaningful, but if you can say, hey, that was 30, per- 30 patients. Like there's something mm-hmm. about the real impact of what they're doing that, you know, by and large our people didn't go into medicine especially primary care to make money. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not their driver. Their driver really is to help their patients. And I think it gets lost in all this rubric of like the high quality that they're doing. And it's great for me because I can see it. You know, when I pick our practices, I'm picking practices that I know are good, especially compared to the other providers in their community. I know that to be true. Mm-hmm. And when I can start showing that and showing how, you know, their actions are really helping drive people, I think that's very powerful. You know, people get grumpy that they're not, happy getting checks absolutely but but you know it, they stay with us because they really believe in the mission and you know that's ultimately the long game is just keep your patients happy and that'll get them that'll get us a lot further than if they're just worried about the checks that are coming in right time so taking a step back to the the early founding days because i think that you are the uh we we've had a chance to speak with the other uh co-founders that august uh, triumvirate, uh, um, and you're sort of our last bite at that apple. Oh boy! Right. So, um, why Bethesda? Why the DC area? Um, well, the DC area, I think, is 
no brainer just because I think this is where the policy world mm -hmm. really comes together with a lot of great tech talent and other things. Um, and I think that is, you know, um, I, I think it's really undervalued for this. And, we're, and again, especially since our model is we want to have strong HQ staff, but also have mm -hmm. people in the field. Um, that that really made sense to us. Bethesda was a sort of a compromise of sorts, of sort of mutually located mm -hmm. between Farzad, myself, and Edwin. We went back and forth. We were thinking Silver Spring for a while, thinking Bethesda. That, then and my, Hamilton and Madison get together. That's exactly what I was There's, there's something say, along yeah. those lines. I think I think my, my wife and Farzad's wife at some point were like, wait, Silver Spring, no, they're going to be in the next <laughs> right. So I think they weighed in at some point, but right. that's why we're here. Okay. And uh, how long did you deliberate on the name? So the name was one of those things that it, it was very early on in, in the life cycle. And I remember vividly talking with Farzad, who had lots of ideas about it. I can it. imagine. And it yeah. was like there was just a lot going on. Well, I don't think I've heard the runners-up. No, uh, well, yeah, no, no, I'm not, we're keeping those secret for like spin-off companies in the future. Um, but when, when he got it, it just, it made sense. And, and initially, you know, the spelling was a little different because mm -hmm. we're, we're not quite spelling it this way. But, you know, as, as far as I tends to do, he went back to his Persian roots and said, this is the way it should have been. Right. It's been there. So al is okay. where it ended up. Okay. Or so, no, it should be there. It's the value-based spelling. Exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, and so we got the name, we got the location. Um, what about uh, the whole concept of, of, of value-based care? So for background, this is something that we've asked pretty much everybody on the show, uh, and it grew out of uh, a, a tweet, which is appropriate for this company, Absolutely. Um, that uh, Christy Farr uh, from CNBC uh, said that the most uh, disruptive thing you can do uh, in healthcare is define the terms in uh, everyday language. I'm paraphrasing here, but yeah, basically yeah. in a way that um, isn't cordoned off by jargon and acronyms. So, you know, what is value-based care? And value-based care, I should say, is, was one of the terms that was then uh, suggested as an opaque term that we use yeah. in, in our sure. sort of healthcare bubble. So what does that mean to you? Um, you know, what do you want people to think of when they think of no. value-based care? People should think that healthy patients are cheap, and we can save the system money by keeping people healthy. That's what value-based care is. Oh, that's nice. That's clean. I like that. Yeah. That may be the best one so far. Yeah. I don't know about that. <laughs> it's true. I mean, again, we do what we do to keep patients healthy. That's what value-based care is. And that you, we value them because we value our patients. We value the money in our system. We value it all. But the, the secret is that health care is healthy patients are cheap. Great. Excellent. Thanks for joining us, Matt. My pleasure. Thanks, Matt.